1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hello everyone, Takuyi here.
1: And I'm Gabby.
2: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member,
0: consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
2: No battle plan survives contact with the enemy.
0: I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So we are so excited to welcome a very special guest today, the host of the award-winning The History of Rome and Revolutions podcast, author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Storm Before the Storm, Mike Duncan. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you sound like you. (laughs) So I got introduced to you through the history of Rome, which I have listened to all of several times. Yeah, so have I. (laughs) So long before we started this podcast, I think it was you and Dan Carlin and This American Life back when I was just learning about podcasts. So thank you. And we're just so thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me. And thank you. And thank you for listening to the history of Rome multiple times, which is more times than I have listened to the history of Rome. I have listened to the history of Rome exactly one time.
0: I listen to our episodes after we put them out because I'm like, oh my gosh, did I forget this one thing? Did I get this wrong? And then I'm like, nah, screw it.
2: I listen to an episode one time when I'm done recording it. And then, I mean, it's the same thing with revolutions. I've listened to revolutions a time.
0: So, um, what inspired you to start the History of Rome podcast, especially back in 2007 when podcasting wasn't as big a thing as it is now? Was there anyone else who inspired you?
2: Yeah, 2007 is now considered some like early primordial period for podcasting because it, it was a number of years before I think it went more mainstream, at least culturally. But back in 2005, 2006, 2007, there was a pretty good community of podcasts and podcasters that I got into. And I mean, the the one that I think I really latched onto in the early days that became a major inspiration for the history of Rome was uh, 12 Byzantine rulers by Lars Brownworth, which I had been listening to because I knew nothing about the Byzantine empire like at all. And so I started listening to that and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is just like free, you know, on-demand audio content that is going to teach me about something that I've I've never heard of before, never knew anything about before. And so I got into a couple other of the podcasts that were out at the time and I got into sports podcasts. And then at this same time I was just reading a ton of Roman history. I was reading, you know, Livy, I was reading Polybius, I was reading Plutarch. I was I was going through this um this binge phase of reading all the ancient historians and was like, "Oh, I should um you know, I should go find whatever the Roman history podcast is and listen to that to supplement whatever it is that I'm, I'm teaching myself here on my own. And really, it didn't exist. There were a couple of ancient history shows and a couple of general history podcasts that would cover Roman history, but nothing that was just dedicated Roman history podcasts. So in my early folly of not knowing any different or not knowing what you're getting yourself into, I was just like, oh, I'll sit down and and make a podcast about Roman history. That sounds like something people do. And so, so I, so like July of 2007, I was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'll just, I'll start at the beginning and I'll just work my way through the whole thing chronologically and it'll take like a year and a half and uh, then I'll move on with my life. And instead it took five, it took five years and kind of became like my identity (laughs) <laughs> and has led to has led to everything else, um, everything that's good in life. To be
0: honest, it shocks me that you got through it in just five years. Yeah, I find that amazing. <laughs> just given how long it takes us to get through Julius Caesar, for example.
2: Right, well, yeah, Jul- Julius Caesar is when you start getting many, many more sources to work with. The year that I cranked back on the time, cranked up the, the amount of time I thought it was going to take was Caesar's first consulship because I was going through a couple of years per episode, you know, you do, cause I'd like, I do the, I do the Sam night wars, the Sam night wars were like two or three episodes maybe. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, this will be like 70 episodes when it's all said and done. And then I got to Caesar's first console ship and that was a whole episode. And I was like, Oh, I see. Like, Ah, uh, right. This is actually gonna. I'm actually gonna be here for a while.
0: We relate to this both of us so hard because we've both had instances where we're like, "This is only gonna take like two episodes to get through," and like 15 episodes later, we're still on this topic.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anytime you bring the Julie and Claudians into into a conversation, it's going to be at least at least five episodes. They take they take over the whole conversation.
2: And if if I was going, and I think people know this, and they laugh at me in my they laugh in my direction about it. But if I was doing the history of Rome now from scratch, it would be like a 1,000 episodes. (laughs) Because my pacing on revolutions is even more detailed and expansive than anything I ever got up to in the history of Rome.
0: I have noticed that. Your pacing has just expanded in revolutions, which I think is really cool and impressive. So what was your favorite period of Roman history to cover when you were covering that area?
2: Well, I should say officially on behalf of my publisher that my favorite time period to cover was the storm before the storm period which is the Gracchi Marius and Sulla right like that that period you know after rome had become a great power but before the republic fell and before we get to you know, before we get to julius caesar when everything you know goes completely haywire that period was is and remains totally fascinating to me but the other big one is the the crisis of the 3rd century period which is one that that by the time that that I got because I, I mean I knew a lot of Roman history going into the history of Rome and I was really just I was expanding and getting a more detailed understanding of a lot of stuff that I knew about. But any sort of history book that you read about late antiquity begins with like Constantine, you know, Di- Diocletian and Constantine is like when that sort of gets going, and the Principate winds down around Septimius Severus and. So that's that's when that part wraps up and then there's always whenever you get to these books it's always like oh and then for 50 years it just got kind of you know, kind of crazy and wacky and and then Diocletian came along and started to like mop things up. So I never I did not have a good understanding or appreciation for what went on during that this 50-year black hole that's often treated as kind of a black hole that we that we pass over on our way to Diocletian and Constantine. So actually going through the crisis of the 3rd century Year by year, Emperor by emperor, event by event was fascinating. I'm still absolutely fascinated by the period. I think that it also has plenty to to offer us about maybe the world that we ourselves might be entering into given a variety of plagues and climate shifts and stuff that is going on out there at the moment. And I am so I, I'm still so in love with that particular period of Roman history that I fully anticipate that my publisher will say, yes, that can be the third book that I write after um, Lafayette, that I will get to write a Christ of the Third Century book.
0: Who are some of the emperors that are big names during that time?
2: The answer to your question is, of course, Aurelian, who is my favorite emperor. Uh, and I can't believe you're throwing me these softballs. This is fantastic. Uh, yeah, Aureli- Aurelian is my favorite emperor because, I mean, what happened around about 2.30, is that um,
1: wait? Okay, so so for someone who he's not hundred percent sure of where we are in the empire, are we talking about like Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, and then like the year of the three emperors time period, five emperors?
2: So we so we so we go um we go Marcus Aurelius gives it off to Commodus, Commodus takes it and you face plants, just makes a hot mess of everything. And then the Severans come along, Severans come along, and you have this like military dictatorship, this this truly like sort of proto-dominant military dictatorship that's in control of things for about a generation. But by 230, even that starts to fall apart. And so kind of the existing imperial structure that had been put in place by Augustus really starts to fray apart completely in about 230 and this is caused by as i just mentioned i mean there there are plagues that start going through i think there is a climate shift that causes population migrations down from like the the asian steppe so this is when the Goths start crossing over into the Empire for the first time, and so you have these population shifts, you have plagues, you have um, all this crap going on, and the government falls apart. The Roman Empire breaks into thirds. So there's a there's a Gallic Empire of um, of what is Gaul and what is Britain. There's a Palmyrian Empire being run by Odonathus and then his wife Queen Zenobia out in Syria.
1: Oh, I love Zenobia.
2: Right, Zenobia. So this so this is a, so this is Zenobia. So in in this book, like Zenobia would be like a, a high main character and. It gets put back together, the Roman Empire does, by this, like, clique of Illyrian emperors from what is today, like, Croatia. They would have been, like, ancestors to the Thracians.
1: Descendants of. Descendants of the Thracians. Yeah, that's what I meant.
2: Yeah, so they they were the yeah, the descendants of the Thracians. So that click and Aurelian is one of them. There's the, uh, there's a couple of them. There's Claudius Gothicus and there's Probus. And then Diocletian and Constantius Chlorus and Constantine all come out of that same grouping and they are the ones who put the empire back together after it falls apart. And for me the most fascinating part about this is that You know, people always talk about why did the Roman Empire fall? This is, of course, one of, you know, always going to be a question that is of interest. Why did the Roman Empire fall And the crisis of the third century? Question is why didn't the Roman Empire fall at this point? It should have fallen. It had every single thing that happens to an empire when it collapses happened and they just they managed to like kind of pull it out and put it back. It was very different. I mean, you you, you know, the, the Tetrarchy and Diocletian's reforms giving you a very different, at least political society than what Augustus had put into place. But it didn't fall apart. It didn't collapse. This is very interesting to me.
0: Why not, do you think?
2: It's having some very good generals finally by the end. And if you're talking about a political structure, that's essentially a military dictatorship. And then there were there were some reforms that Aurelian made to the money. So because, oh, that's another thing. The, the money was all worthless because it was all debased from overprinting out of the mints. So it was just, it was kind of a run of good policy and good reforms. And then I think that some of the worst effects of the environmental catastrophes that were also hitting him at the same time kind of stabilized. So I think that grain production stabilized. I think that the plague started to dissipate a little bit. They were able to knit it back together.
0: This is a period of time that actually I think Jen really loves too, because I know you love Commodus, Jen.
1: He was so wild. Sometimes you
2: read things and you're like,
1: especially in the ancient sources, and you're like, could this have really been what was going on? Like, how did this happen for this amount of time? Like, I feel feel the same way about Caligula Nero. And whenever I read all the ancient sources, I'm like, this has got to be someone's political spin on something, because it just seems impossible. I was just doing a lot of research into gladiators. And when you sort of read about Commodus and how he fancied himself to be a gladiator, Gladiator and getting in the ring and having his opponents definitely hamstrung or given wooden swords or shooting arrows into the crowd at people who laughed at him. You're like, why didn't he die sooner?
0: Why wasn't he assassinated sooner? Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. Why did it take the guy in the bath so long to kill him? Yeah. I think part of it is that those guys who were living around the age of Commodus or they were dealing with Caligula or they were dealing with Nero or whatever, right? Like they didn't have the benefit of knowing the totality of everything that he was going to have done 10 years from now right so the, so you don't have all of that information in your head and even on a daily basis you know you get up and you you know you have your breakfast and you go through your day and like some other like little weird thing happens but it's all very slow and i think that we have it humans have an ability we're i think we're watching this right now have an ability to kind of integrate changes into their life and and things that you thought maybe weren't possible or things that would have been weird a year ago, and now they happen. And you're like, oh, okay. I mean, that's weird and I don't like it, but that's how you look back and you're like, how did we put up with that for 10 years? And it's because you're just kind of, you're just, you're just kind of putting up with it every day and it's always a little bit different. And then probably a week would go by where nothing weird would happen. And then something weird would happen. And then a month would go by. And we, we, we get to step back and look at the whole thing and be like, this guy was, nuts. He was terrible for 10 years or however however, he was emperor for what, like 13 years? I forget. I
1: think so. I mean, he was a he was a good populist in some regards. Like, you know, he loved a spectacle. He loved putting on a show, which obviously people who need something as a break from their life. And, you know, that, that is a good thing. I remember reading that like he would just throw coins and gifts and jewelry into the stands.
0: So, Mike, what was it that made you take on revolutions next? What was it that drew you to this topic?
2: Okay, so what drew me to revolutions? There were a couple of things. First, when I was younger, like, let's say before I was even going off to college, revolutionary events and revolutionary history was something that was just kind of inherently interesting to me. I mean, probably like, you know, like teenage boy stuff, you know, you like you like a good romantic a revolutionary struggle. That's why we all like Star Wars.
1: Yeah, that's why one of us decided to read all of Les Mis,
2: all thousand plus pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean...
1: Oh, you
0: think I did not read all of Les Mis? because I have.
2: Yeah. So I got really into the American Revolution. I, was, I got really into um, the Russian Revolution. I, I studied that a lot. And then, you know, life you know took me elsewhere, but it was always something that was really interesting to me. And then when I when I finished the history of Rome and knew I wanted to do another podcast, I didn't want to get typecast as just only able to do Roman history. I'm only able to do ancient history. So I wanted to move to the modern world in some way to cover something. And then I was hoping this is you know this is again when people point and laugh at me is that I wanted to do something that was shorter than the history of Rome. (laughs) I didn't want to tackle, I didn't want to, yeah, you're laughing at me right now
0: right to your face
2: yeah. <laughs> because when when you listen to and i still haven't taken this down i leave it up there as a you know as a as a monument to my own self-delusion i said I, I each of these revolutions will be a discrete series it will be 12 to 15 episodes i will do like 10 or 12 of these and this will take me about three years so that was the idea that was the that was the other big selling point for revolutions that i would be able to do discrete series that would not be taking on such a monumental thing as oh i'm gonna do the entire history of of something again i want to it to be a little bit more um, concise than that, and of course, it's now ballooned and you know spread all over the, all over everything, all over my whole life. And uh, but I love it, and there's a reason why I pulled the cap off of it before I went into the French Revolution because it's all too interesting, and it's all you know. The French Revolution can't be done properly in 15 episodes, and it, so it took me 55 episodes, and even that involved a lot of cutting and throwing uh, throwing aside uh, stuff that I would have gone into if I just had all the time in the world. So now I've been doing Revolutions 4. I started in 2013. It's whatever year it is now, 2020. Um. So
0: Time is a flat circle.
2: Yeah, it's all, all time. Time is gone. But so it's been, yeah, it's been seven years. I've well blown past the total number of episodes for the history of Realm.
0: You're just going to be doing this forever is the thing.
2: I have said I am going to end it, right? Because Revolutions does have a shelf life. I, th- I think that things should ultimately come to an end. And so after I do Russia, which, you know, again, it was part one, was like 40 episodes long or something. So when I come back from this hiatus that I'm on to write the book, I will do another 40 or 50 episodes on the revolution of 1917 and then call it quits on revolutions. And then, yeah, probably just, um, you know, I have two or three notions of what I would like to do after revolutions. None of it is set in stone.
1: I do think what you said about sort of like seeing how the things balloon like we found that our podcast was called ancient history fangirl and for the past what has it been two years two years we've mostly just been in Greece and Rome and everyone's like when are you going to go here when are you going to go there I'm like we're going to get there we promise we're going to get there the problem is like to go into the depth that you need to go into to cover a lot of different cultures and different areas of the world you just need to be able really researched so it takes time to get in there and it takes time to feel where the story is and how you want to tell it and there are still so many stories we haven't told in the area we're in right now.
0: And so much of this is a function of world building, you know, like we've kind of laid all this groundwork in this one area and now it's easier because we can go back and just like we know all the sources, we know where to find something, we know where the side stories are. And of course, we discover new things every day, but it kind of you have this framework as you go along. And if we decided to just up and move, you know, to somewhere totally different, then we'd have to build that all over again. We want to do that, you know, but it just takes a while.
2: I understand. And I think also that just sort of trusting your own instincts about what is interesting to you is there's like a really good way to, you know, you should follow your own nose. I've often done that. Like if it's interesting to me, I feel like I can make it interesting to people who are listening to me talk about it and if it's not interesting to me or if you know if I'd rather be talking about something else I do think that that'll ultimately come through cuz this is something that we do you know I get to make a living at this now I feel very blessed and lucky but for years and years and years I wasn't making any money at this it was just something I was doing and if you're going to if anybody's going to sustain projects like this, you need to be interested in what it is that you're talking about. And you need to be passionate about what's in front of your face and not doing it. Um, you know, we got to please the people, of course. But uh, you also you got to you got you to gotta please your your own heart first.
0: It's so true. It has to be something you cannot shut up about. I
2: have I've have given that as advice to people, it, which is which is when people are like, oh, I want to start a podcast, but I don't know what it should be about. And I have literally said it's the thing that people would like you to shut up about. That's your podcast because you will find people out there who will want to listen to you in a way that your friends are merely tolerating you because they like you. (laughs) Your
1: friends, your spouse, your family members. Strangers in the bar, you know.
2: (laughs) it's, It's true.
0: what's your favorite revolution so far? And what common threads are you seeing now that you've studied all these revolutions? What are you seeing as common threads in these stories?
2: Okay. So question the first is, what's my favorite revolution? Which again, sets us up very nicely because I, even though it's weird to say this is my favorite of, of anything when, when they, these things are not like great. You know, who's your favorite mass murderer? Um, like that kind of thing. But the answer is, is very clear. It's very clearly for me, the Haitian revolution, which that was the one doing that is the revolution I feel the best about having covered. I feel the best that that I put it out there in as detailed a format as I did. And then it changed me. I mean, spending that much time in Saint-Domingue and Haiti with those people through that event really Really affected my own personal worldview. Uh, it affected my, my total interpretation of what else was going on in the Atlantic world. When I look back at my series on the the American Revolution, I feel like my series on the American Revolution probably could have, would have been better if I had done it after I did the Haitian Revolution, because there were lots of different things that came to me that were epiphanies for me. So it was really, you know, kind of personally a bit transformative. And then just when I look back and, you know, what are you proud of in your career? putting 19 episodes of the Haitian Revolution out there for everybody to listen to. So that now when people say, oh my goodness, I never heard of this Haitian Revolution, people can say, oh, well, this guy Mike Duncan did 19 episodes on it. Just go listen to that. And that'll, that's a great primer for you. You know, it's, it's not the whole story. Of course, you know, none of these things can ever be, can ever be everything, but I'll, I'll I'll walk you through what happened from event, event, person, person, you know, for for the fifteen odd years that the Haitian Revolution was raging,
0: I was just gonna say, was it just fifteen years? Because I listened to the entire series that you did, and I was just like, this is a long time that these people are living through this.
2: The official marking point of its beginning is seventeen ninety one, but obviously things are brewing, and there's lots of um, there's lots of unrest and rebellion before that. But seventeen ninety one is when it starts, and then Haitian Independence is eighteen o four. So that's um that's my favorite revolution. So the other question is what are what are some of the common threads that I have seen through all of these revolutions. One of them is very clearly that the early revolutions that I was covering there's no such thing as a professional revolutionary. There's nobody who's sitting around in coffee houses plotting revolution. You know, even the French revolutionaries, they were talking about reform, they were talking about pushing the envelope, they were talking about change, but like they didn't know that they were about to stage this thing called the French Revolution. And even when you get on down the road and you do have people who were then able to look back in the French Revolution and be professional revolutionaries by, you know, the Paris Commune or by, of course, I'm doing the Russian Revolution now. There were lots of professional revolutionaries involved in that, but there's no predicting these things they just kind of start to happen of their own accord. And people, you can push at things and you can prod at things and you can try to pull people in certain directions or undermine things or help things along. But for the most part, things just break out and things just happen. And these revolutionary events that in retrospect, follow a very linear path from causes to triggers to outbreak and then generally there's like a reaction at the end and then it often ends with a dictator but this is kind of a standard course of revolutions most of these things are not predictable the events as they actually unfold there's a lot of chaos there's a lot of happenstance things could go every single day of a revolution is a state of about a million different quantum states that this revolution could move into. And then it just moves into one of them and somebody's up and somebody's down and somebody dies and somebody lives. And so all these things, like the whole thing just gets very, it, it's out of hand, but also moving in a direction. It's its crazy that way. And so when people... Uh, people who want to, say, start a revolution, and they would like a revolutionary event in order to create like a more just society. The problem is that when these things get going, you often don't have any real hand in getting it started to begin with, and then once it gets going, it's often out of your hands. And as one wise philosopher said, who I now forget who it was, so I won't drop their name, is that a hurricane blows away both just and unjust alike. These revolutionary events are those things. And even if they end in a good way, like the Haitian Revolution, what are you going to do? Say they shouldn't have done it. They should have stayed enslaved. I mean, I'm not sure that I would want to say that to anybody. But at the same time, the Haitian Revolution was an insane hurricane that nobody was really in control of. And even even Toussaint Louverture, who we'll talk about in a sec, you know, his great skill was not being a great director of events. He was very adept at nimbly picking his way through events. But he was not you know, sitting up in the mountains directing things. He was constantly responding to events that were well outside of his control. And that his skill was in his ability to respond and adapt to things rather than being able to direct things. So one of the big themes of revolutions is just how truly chaotic and out of control, out of anybody's control, everything is.
0: Before going in, what I knew about this revolution was that it was a revolution where the enslaved people actually won. And... That was so exciting to me and so intriguing. And I wanted to know all about Toussaint Louverture and this amazing person who succeeded against all odds because slavery has been with us since we had like settled stratified societies. And the fact that in all this time, there's only one revolution that we know about historically where the people revolting were successful. Am I right in that? That's like true, right?
2: It's one of those true things that, we can say is true, you know, that the Haitian Revolution was the only successful, you know, slave revolution in history. I mean, you got to qualify a little bit just in the sense that there have been slave rebellions that have effectively allowed, like, a breakaway slave community to go off and live by itself, for example, or, you know, slaves have gotten away. Slave, there have been, you know, marinage in, in the Caribbean and in South America, where it was all very common. In the American, what is now the American Southeast, but the American South at the time, you know, people were breaking away, rising up, they were making for Florida. So there have been these sort of like little isolated examples of successful slave uprisings that have either gotten concessions or recognition, or some people have gotten their freedom, you know, people have fought and successfully won their freedom. But what makes Haiti so unique is that this is the slaves rising up and actually overthrowing the existing polity. Right. The existing state that ruled that, you know, the, the ruling apparatus of Saint-Domingue was overthrown and replaced by something else that was populated by these former slaves who had successfully thrown off not just slavery, but the governmental apparatus that was uh, that had kept them enslaved. And that is truly that's unique. You don't you don't get that anywhere else. And I'm, I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll get told that there was another example of this somewhere, but not that I'm aware of.
0: Right, and with the qualification that none of us knows at all about the entire history of everywhere in the world.
1: Yeah, and and as we've said many times, like, we're only also able to read sources in languages we can speak and read. So I've had a few times where I've been like, ooh, I'd love to know more about what was happening here, but I don't read this language.
0: And no one's translated it, so.
2: This is a claim that's been made about the, the Haitians for a couple hundred years, and I haven't heard anybody really stamp their feet too loudly and point to something And say, no, 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 this is also, this is also the same thing. And, you know, slavery has existed like everywhere in the world, as you say, for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and the Haitians were, I think, really the first ones to, to, to really pull it off.
0: So I want to get into Tucson Leverture and um, the Haitian Revolution, and I was hoping when we started talking about ideas for this episode to do kind of a comparison between the Haitian Revolution and Spartacus.
2: Well, you're talking to the right guy. I know.
0: <laughs> you would be the person to talk to.
1: <laughs> I feel like this is your intersection here.
2: <laughs> for people who
1: haven't listened to your episodes, which is a crime, and after this, they need to listen to it, could you give us sort of just like a brief potted history just so they're a little caught up?
2: Easy. Um, okay, so we know that there was this thing called European colonization uh, that happened. You know, at, So after Columbus gets going and uh, the European powers move across the Atlantic into South America and North America and then the Caribbean. And these these powers, France, uh, the Netherlands, the British, the Portuguese, and the Spanish, those are your sort of five main players in the Americas by 1600s, 1700s. And the way that colonization unfolded you know obviously the spanish are, are really interested in uh, mining silver and gold down in south america and then up in north america the french uh thereafter like beaver pelts up in canada uh you know the new englanders are harvesting cod uh obviously we know that in virginia they're doing tobacco but what ultimately becomes the main wealth engine of american colonial society for all of these european civilizations is the cash crops that they can grow on the islands of the Caribbean. So, this is principally sugar and coffee, but also indigo and cotton, and there's a bunch, you know, cinnamon, the herbs and spices of our life. A lot of these come from the Caribbean colonial trade. And this is the moment in human history, at least in the European diet, when sugar and coffee become staples of everybody's diet, not just something that, that the very, very upper crust elite can enjoy. If you're a king and queen, you can get some sugar. But by the 1700s, now the sugar is coming out in insane amounts. It's just producing so much wealth. And so the labor for producing all of this in these sugar islands is the slaves, It's the African slaves. So these European societies are going down to the African coast. They're kidnapping Africans and dragging them across the Atlantic, plopping them down in these Caribbean islands and forcing them to work on sugar plantations and coffee plantations. And this is the triangle trade. Okay, so this is so this is roughly where we're at. And the the Haitian Revolution is going to happen in seventeen ninety one. So we're in the latter bits of the seventeen hundred, and this is after the American Revolution, right? That has happened. So everything that was going on up in the United States, what is now the United States has already happened. But you have this colony called Saint Domingue, which is the western half of an island called Santo Domingo. And it was probably the single most lucrative plot of land in the entire world at the time. Like something like 50% of the sugar and coffee that was being consumed globally, I think globally, at least in Europe, is coming from Saint-Domingue, which is this French colony. It's a French sugar colony. And it's some of the most brutal slavery, that I've ever come across, um, you know, when people ask me like, what's the, what are the worst conditions you've ever come across? One of them is Roman state-owned mines, right? Those those Roman those Roman mines. Like when you read when you read descriptions of what it would be to be a slave in the Roman mines, it sounds like they just literally worked you to death.
0: It happened in the Letifundias too.
2: Yeah, you didn't come up for air. You just got worked to death, and your life was so cheap that it didn't matter what happened to you. So. This same thing is true of Saint-Domingue, where the profit that was being made from the sugar, from the coffee, from the indigo that was being produced was so insane that the cost of human life that's being brought over in the form of enslaved people was cheap. So they would just work them to death. And, you know, the average lifespan of an enslaved person in Saint-Domingue was like a year and a half, you know, and maybe five, like if you made it to five years, that was crazy. So this is not the only thing that's happening because European settlers are coming there, planters are coming there, managers are coming there, whites, uh, whites are coming and they're living there too, and they are often taking as wives uh, African women, and then those African women are often becoming their legal wives, and the children that they have are these people of color, this, these mixed race kids who are born free and under French law are free citizens themselves. So in Saint Domingue. At the time of the revolution in 1791, there's a population of European whites, about 30,000 of them, and there's a population of about 30,000 free people of color who were well settled. Who they themselves they own plantations. They were they themselves could be wealthy. They could be poor. Whatever.
0: They could be slave owners.
2: Sure, many of them were. Of course, yeah, many of them were. Toussaint Louverture was a slave owner himself at a certain point. Yeah, that that this happens. And then so there's about 30,000 free people of color, and then alongside them is about 500,000 black African slaves who are doing the majority of the work. And so that is the population of Saint-Domingue at the time when the French Revolution breaks out. And the French Revolution breaks out in 1789, and Saint-Domingue is a colony of the Kingdom of France. And when all of this unrest and revolutionary challenges to authority start to break out. There starts to be a civil war between the whites and the free people of color that then the black African slaves take advantage of and they rise up and revolt and the thing turns into this sort of intertwined uh, chaotic clockwork of you know forward, backward, left, right, complete free-for-all.
0: One of the things that this story reminded me of was our work on the First and Second Servile Wars, where it was kind of the same thing on these giant, you know, agricultural plantations owned by ancient Roman senators and best men. Oh, Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) We just have to do that. Every time. (laughs) Life was cheap, and they'd work you to death, and they wouldn't give you clothes, and they wouldn't give you enough food. And if you survived maybe a year or so, you were lucky. And The population on Sicily, I'm sure you've come across this, but the population on Sicily around the first servile war was, I believe, one in three persons enslaved and the population on Saint-Domingue, and correct me if I'm wrong on these numbers, one in 10 people wasn't enslaved. Like that was the balance.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was was like less than 600,000 people and there were 500,000 slaves, whatever that ratio is. And as you, as you say, like Sicily, one of the, one of the great problems with Sicily was that quote unquote, everybody was a slave and it wasn't actually everybody being a slave and certainly not compared to the ratios that were going on. And this was true, not just of Saint Domingue. Um, this was true of most of the Caribbean slave societies was you just had this massive population of enslaved workers being managed by, you know, one of the similarities between Sicily and, um, These islands was most of it was like absentee landlords, where the actual owners of the plantations, let's just focus on French colonies, most of them were either nobles or merchants who were living in Paris, Versailles, Bordeaux, you know, something like that. And they, you know, they had title and they would get the profits, but they weren't actually, they were not actually really living there, managing things. They would send managers, they would send professional estate managers, and those professional estate managers were there to do one thing, and that was to just make as much money as humanly possible. And as I said, the price of a slave, like, because people have sometimes asked me, like, well, why did they treat them so horribly? Because when, you know, to follow up on this, you know, life in a Roman state on mine is terrible. Sugar work as a slave is atrocious. Right, like working with sugar, it's very sharp. It gets in your skin. It pricks you. It scars you. You get you know sweat, and sugar bleeds into that. You're basically just your body is kind of on fire for most of the day. It's backbreaking, backbreaking labor, and then and then there's an there's an entire um, process of like boiling the sugar to refine it, and that you know you're talking about boiled sugar, you know, just like landing on you and clinging to your body, your hands. You know, m- people are being mutilated. If you try to run, if you try to stop working, you're going to be whipped it was just incredibly 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 brutal work and the only thing anybody cared about running it was was how much sugar can we get out of this because the sugar was incredibly lucrative and this is this is what is fueling the colonial empires and this is this is a thing is A lot of this profit is then what is going into the pockets of the people, this quote-unquote rising bourgeoisie, right, back in France. You know, like, where did did this rising bourgeoisie come from? Where where did they get all this money that allowed them to feel like they could challenge the king for control of the kingdom of France? Well, a lot of it is coming from the slave trade and from from the Caribbean sugar colonies, like Saint-Domingue.
1: Unbelievable.
2: One might call it hypocrisy.
1: Screaming hypocrisy. One of the things you mentioned is like just looking at the at the cross section of when the Haitian Revolution happened and when Spartacus's Revolution happened. So wider things happening in both the Roman world and the French world, which allowed space for a revolution. Like, I think the big thing about Spartacus is everyone's like, he was this great guy who wanted, like, quality for all. And that is not actually the case. He was a guy who was enslaved. He wanted to escape. And he happened to break out at a time when most of the seasoned generals were all fighting two different wars on two different fronts. And the people who were left behind were not as skilled. And also, they didn't take the revolution very seriously. So they weren't really taking them seriously as opponents.
0: They weren't sending their best against them.
1: But also their best weren't there. So they also had to raise new armies and fund new legions who were either retired soldiers or from like younger people or people with less combat experience.
2: No, I I think that's entirely true. And this is what makes Saint-Domingue possible this is what makes the Haitian Revolution possible is that it is going to be happening against the backdrop of the French Revolution and the French Revolutionary Wars that follow up on that what the slaves who are rising up in Saint-Domingue were able to the reason they were able to do this is because you have the Spanish Empire the British Empire the French Empire are all jockeying for position in this space at the same time so like there's a larger imperial war that is happening where the slaves on the island are able to draw support from France's enemies, right? And so without that, this is a big question: Why did it work in in Haiti, where it didn't really work anywhere else? And part of it has to do with the fact that they were able to link directly into basically funding and arms from the Spanish government and from the British, who were gonna who were gonna be able to support them in their fight against France because they're trying to. Because I mean, the Spanish don't care; they got slaves. The British don't care, they have slaves, they don't care, they don't care about helping slaves get free, but they do care about hurting the French, and they do care about taking over Saint-Domingue, which is this incredibly lucrative plot of land. And you know, both the you know, the British, when they came in a couple of years down the road, the British are invading. That's part of the story of the Haitian Revolution, and they would have re-enslaved everybody. They were happy to re-enslave everybody because the British loved slaves as much as everybody else at this point. But if they had to choose between arming some slaves to hurt the French and not then they're going to go ahead and arm the slaves to hurt the French.
0: Yeah, everybody's trying to play the population of Saint-Domingue, like the revolutionaries of Saint-Domingue, against each other. Louverture just navigates these currents. Like there was one point where he's facing off against Napoleon. So let's talk about Toussaint Louverture and who he was and what his background was.
2: So Toussaint Louverture was not, not uncom- he, uncommon, but not totally rare, is that he was actually born in Saint-Domingue. Right, most of the slave population are recent arrivals from Africa. Even on the the eve of the revolution, I think something like half of the slaves who participated had only been on the island for like less than a year. So this is not a this is not really a story of like long oppressed people rising up. Uh, many of them were recent arrivals, which helped play into their they they were mostly trying to not become slaves anyway. Toussaint Louverture. Is born into slavery, and he has he shows at an early age clear signs of intelligence and clear signs of being he's like a precocious kid. And he has he has a master who takes note of this and kind of kind of tutors him, teaches him how to read, teaches him how to do math, teaches him how to watch accounts because it's a very valuable thing to have a black African slave who's like multilingual. And who can run an estate. This is a, and so Tucson would have been given various privileges by his master to, to sort of bring him along. And Tucson Louverture became, while he was still a slave, a very well respected citizen of the community. Most of the time, you don't you're not really allowed to leave your plantations. Tucson would have been one of the ones who was kind of allowed to come and go as he wanted. He could go down to the ports, he could come back to the plantation. He was talking to everybody. And he was he was an estate manager, he was an overseer. And so at a certain point in his life, he's probably, I'm going to be a little hazy on the details, but I think he was in his mid thirties and his master um, allowed him to buy his way out of slavery because slaves could make money on the side selling various things they had grown or made. You could make a little money for yourself. And so Toussaint was allowed to buy his way out of slavery and he became a free man. So when the Haitian revolution actually breaks out, though Toussaint Louverture had been a slave, he was not at that point currently enslaved. He was, he was a free citizen of um, the French kingdom at that point. So he gets married. He has some kids. He starts up his own plantation. He himself becomes a slave owner because slavery at this, uh, in this moment and in this time and place was very much accepted. And though it had its racial connotations, he was free you know, he wasn't a slave, so a free man can own slaves.
0: The color of your skin did not mean that you were united people. Like The free people of color were owning slaves, and the enslaved population would not necessarily have seen them as allies.
2: No, the, the slaves would have seen the free people of color, especially the slave-owning people of color, as the enemy.
0: And a lot of the time they did, like they didn't really unite until towards the end. Am I right on that?
2: Yeah, and even then, I mean, the War the war of the Knives is uh, a battle between the the recently arisen black slaves. I mean, th- this is all a vast oversimplification um, led by Toussaint Louverture and the, the free people of color who were being led by André Rigaud um, down in the South at that point. The racial dynamics in the colony are explicit about whites being on top and people of color being below the whites, but above the blacks, and the blacks being the lowest socially. But a free black could own black slaves, and that was no problem. Now, you couldn't own a white slave, of course. I mean, you can only own black African slaves. You cannot own a white person. A black man cannot own a white man, but a black man can own a black man.
0: There's no white slaves on this island. Is that the case?
2: There are no white slaves on this island. Right, exactly. So Toussaint Louverture is by the time of the Revolution in 1791. He's now in his 40s. He's uh, his plant his plantation actually didn't didn't work. He went back to work for um for his old master as a manager, and he was not even a participant in the initial uprising in 1791, Bookman's Uprising in August of of 1791, which is slaves getting together and deciding to rise up. And Toussaint Louverture kind of hung back to see because there had been. You know, we talked about this earlier, there, there were rebellions, um, there were uprisings. Slave uprisings and slave rebellions were, were a common feature of colonial life, right? Right up through the United States, the Caribbean, South America, Venezuela, whatever, you name it, there were slave uprisings. So Toussaint kind of hung back a little bit to see if this thing was going to go anywhere, and he didn't hop in for after it was going for a couple months. And, uh, and even at that point in the early going, when he did join the slave uprising, one of the first things that he did was try to negotiate an end to it. His thing was that he was going to say that, look, why don't you give a couple hundred of us leaders our freedom? and then we will try to talk to the rest of the slave population to see if we can't bring an amicable end to this because it's in everybody's you know, it's not in anybody's interest to, to just keep on fighting. And the whites basically rejected that proposal. And in rejecting that proposal, uh, that was the last time that Tucson tried to negotiate in uh, negotiate a deal that would have put most of the people who had risen up back into slavery. That's the last point. This is late 1791. This is the last point that he actually is willing to negotiate putting anybody back into slavery. And from that point on, one of his singular points is that no, every... like at least everybody in the army, <laughs> everybody who's fighting in this army, we're free now. That's it. It's self-declared, right? It doesn't come from you. It's really funny as you as you get farther along uh, to 1793 and 1794 when the emancipation proclamation start coming from from the white colonial officials. The guys who have rose up in 1791, they're like, yeah, this doesn't apply to me. I am already free. It's done. I've been free for 3 years.
0: Like we're not we're not waiting for you to bestow freedom on us. We are declaring ourselves free.
2: Yeah, so that's exactly, and so where these guys go is to the Spanish. And because the Spanish are right next door in what is today the Dominican Republic, because, because Santo Domingo is, is one island with what is today two countries, Haiti on one side and the Dominican Republic on the other. And the Dominican Republic was at that point just a Spanish colony. And so they start, they, they link up with the Spanish army. Many of these slave generals, including Tucson, become commissioned officers in the Spanish army. And the slaves who have risen up against the French, they're an auxiliary force of the Spanish army. Jean-Francois and Bissou both have commissions as generals in the Spanish army. And this is one of the things that makes their rebellion possible as they start getting money and guns over the mountains. Eventually, Tucson starts to chafe in his own position inside of this slave insurgency, he starts to take a look at the lay of the land and say to himself, okay, well, actually back in France, by 1793 and 1794, the French are actually starting to win the French Revolutionary Wars, uh, where in the early going it looked like they were gonna get snuffed out and the Spanish were gonna be on the winning side. Now it looks like the French are actually gonna win the war back in Europe, and they're looking quite a bit stronger, and toussaint Louverture switches sides. And he offers to put himself at the disposal of what is now French colonial officials who are working not for the King of France, not for the Ancien Régime, but have been dispatched by the French revolutionary government. So you have these new colonial officials who have been sent by the revolutionaries in France, and Toussaint Louverture parlays a deal with them, said, I'll bring my army over to you and I'll fight with you, and in exchange, we're going to want freedom, and we're going to want power, and we're going to want prestige, and we're going to want land, and we're going to want all these things. And he hops over from the Spanish to the French just as the French are winning, and just as the Spanish are about to be defeated. The Spanish are defeated by the French back in Europe, what is it, a year maybe later?
0: It's good timing.
2: Yeah, very good timing. And this is the thing. Uh, Toussaint was incredibly astute and was able to read people and read events and know when to make the right move at the right time. And so his career is really a series of making the right move at the right time. But as I said, there is a cynical and ambitious side to Dusan. But he would never compromise on putting people back into slavery after that sort of initial brush with being willing to negotiate his way out of it.
0: We've covered a lot of this already, but one of the things I was really interested in talking to you about was um, advantages that Toussaint had and advantages maybe that were endemic to the situation that Spartacus didn't have. And, um We've touched on all the outside events brewing that um, affected Toussaint and his ability to sort of navigate between these huge colonial powers. But there's also other factors. For example, when the British came over at one point to quell this rebellion, they all got struck down with yellow fever.
2: Oh, true. Yeah, disease was a huge player in all of this where, I mean, the, the mortality rate for Europeans coming really anywhere in the Caribbean it was like bad. Malaria and yellow fever. I mean, off the top of my head, I, I think it was like a 50% clip. Like you basically had a 50-50 chance. If you lived through the first year, you know, you were probably going to be okay, but it, otherwise you would die. So this happened to everybody who came to try You know, By the end, you mentioned that Napoleon, is he's going to eventually be tangling with Napoleon, which of course Louverture and Napoleon did tangle with each other because after Napoleon took over back in France, this is now 10 years or so after the revolution in, in either France or Haiti got going. Napoleon wanted to re-enslave everybody and retake over this engine of colonial wealth because, you know, Napoleon wanted to fund his great empire. And what better way to fund his own empire than with um, with these with these sugar plantations? And Napoleon's grand scheme was to hop over into the Caribbean, reassert control of Saint Domingue, start pushing the French Navy out so that it could take over Jamaica, so it could take over the rest of Santo Domingo. So it could take over Puerto Rico, all those islands, and then they were going to move up into Florida and Louisiana and the Gulf Coast of Texas and Mexico, and that he was just going to carve out this huge French colonial empire. Like all of the Caribbean would have been working for Napoleon, and his first move was to send a this huge armada, right? Like so many ships and like fifty thousand soldiers are going to go to once and for all reassert control over Saint Domingue and turn this revolutionary event into what would amount to a very large, but ultimately feudal uprising, which all slave rebellions end in failure. So Napoleon's like, so this is when it ends in failure. This is when it happens. It's me. I'm Napoleon. I'm going to send this guy, General Leclerc. They're going to reconquer him. But when they showed up, there's of course, there's an epidemic. And like all these, all those French soldiers, they get sick and uh, Toussaint Louverture and his generals and all of their soldiers, they pull back into the mountains and say, we'll just, we'll let them sit on the coast and most of them will die of these various tropical fevers. And then if we need to, we'll come down and we'll mop it all up. And this wasn't a bad plan. It pretty much worked for the Haitians. It didn't work quite so well for Toussaint Louverture because he now has enemies inside of, inside of Saint-Domingue what they're about to turn into Haiti. And he's got plenty of internal rivals and they hand him over they capture him and hand him over to the french and he he winds up dying in a french prison sadly he
0: does not get to see the end of his revolution which is tragic but the yellow fever advantage is not something that spartacus had
2: right yeah he didn't he didn't have tropical fevers working for him and then as as we've said though like the other big one is that spartacus is rising up in the center of the roman empire the roman empire like at its height, or a, very close to at its height, and certainly in the Western Mediterranean. What Toussaint Louverture could do and all of those guys could do is look for another power to back them up. And I just don't see where Spartacus gets that support.
1: The only one would have been Mithridates, but getting to Mithridates would have meant crossing the Alps and then crossing Rome, all of the Roman armies again. So nobody was going to be able to come in.
2: Yeah, it's not easy if Carthage if Carthage had still been a thing at that point but of course you don't get you know Italy isn't what Italy is when Spartacus is alive without Carthage already having been destroyed you don't have the slave society that Rome became without them having defeated Carthage already so there was nowhere and you know the one time in the Spartacus story when he does look to sort of getting support for you know he's like makes this deal with the pirates and the pirates what do they do they screw them over
0: yeah, thanks, pirates.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks, pirates. Yeah.
0: Thanks for nothing, assholes.
2: Although worth noting that the Haitians were on very good terms with the pirates. The pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, they were a real thing, and they were they were still cruising around.
0: Yeah, all the Jack Sparrows out there.
2: Yeah, that's how. That's a lot of ways that they got guns, and it's a lot of ways that they sold. They were able to sell contraband because obviously, you know, they're being blockaded by everybody, and so one of the ways that they could generate a little bit of cash was um was uh, selling selling pirates. But they never had. To, they never tried to escape. Right. They never tried to escape with the pirates uh, or they would have been left behind.
0: They weren't depending on the pirates to that level.
1: Yeah. Spartacus's plan was to take his army to Sicily and then to, if I'm remembering correctly, and then to get the entire island to rise up again so that then he had new recruits to take on the Roman Empire. There's also a really interesting part in that story where Spartacus does send like... His demands to, I can't remember which general it is, or traitor, and he's like, this is what we want. Come to the table and have a discussion with us. And if you do, like, this can all end. And, of course, the Romans are like, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to crush you. And then they continue to not be crushed for another year or so.
2: But eventually crushed.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not not a happy ending for Spartacus. It leads to the sort of chaos that comes next. I mean, what is it like? How much longer after Spartacus is no Julius Caesar's there already?
0: Well Julius Caesar's still around.
1: Yeah, we don't know where he was, but he's yeah, he's running around, so.
0: Mystery. Great mystery. He won't tell us.
2: Well, according to according to the TV show Spartacus, he was right there in the middle of all of it with flowing blonde hair. The blonde hair. Woo!
0: Yeah, oh yes. We have, we have watched that series many times.
2: <laughs> yeah, the blonde flowing hair. Yes, the locks.
0: Very blonde, very ripped. I'm just like, all right, Julius Caesar has been working out.
1: It's like he's been like surfing somewhere.
0: So what were some other factors that contributed to Tucson's success here? Topography, culture, geography.
2: Well, I think the other... The, certainly Haiti itself is incredibly for lack of lack of a lack of a better way of putting it it's a very steep country it, it there's a coastline and then it moves very rapidly into these these steep mountainous cliffs that had to be terraced to make the coffee for example and and then you would make the sugar in the valleys but you could always you know in terms in just the, the brass tacks of making war there's high ground and there's low ground and so if you control the high ground you're in much better shape than than if you don't control the high ground and so the ability for them to always pull back in and command the, command that high ground, and as, as I said, when, when the French came in to try to reconquer them after 1800, they just pulled back up and waited. And it's incredibly difficult to march uphill in tropical conditions in order to try to root out, you know, these are, these are mountainous, jungle-ish Types of conditions. You know, Spartacus is running around in in Campania. And yeah, sure, they they were working around Vesuvius there for a bit, and that was really smart. But where are you actually having your battles? What terrain are you actually fighting in? Haiti lent itself very much to the kind of guerrilla warfare and guerrilla insurgency style of warfare. That was the hallmark of their uprising. This is not, you know, batteries of well-organized marching in line to a drummer on a great plane. We're not talking about Waterloo. We're not. We're not looking for a place where I can array my lines in in order and have the spearmen over here and the, and the archers over here. This is this is guys up in the mountains. So I, th- I definitely think that that's one of the other big things that made all of this possible. But for sure, I think the biggest thing was just the fact that they were able to parlay an imperial rivalry to their own advantage. There was just multiple conflicts happening at the same time and they were just able to carve their own space out of that and not give it up.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't want to say it's lucky, but it's great that they had that. <laughs> Spartacus didn't have that.
1: It's, a, it's, an ad, it's an advantage that they had it. It's not luck because they could just as easily not have been able to, to parlay that. They could have not had the leadership or the foresight to do that.
0: Toussaint Louverture absolutely did. I don't think that is luck. I think that that is skill and foresight and um, just ability. I think it's it's lucky that all this stuff was happening around them so that he had that to grab onto. Oh
2: well, sure. I mean, and t- Toussaint Louverture is, w- is one of these guys like Caesar, like Napoleon where you say they have all this talent and then there's just, there is luck, you know, there is luck that he just recognized something at the right time or, you know, something went right instead of going wrong. I mean, Caesar is one of the luckiest, luckiest people I've ever come across in history. And and Napoleon is one of the luckiest people I've ever come across in in world history. And, um,
1: until they weren't
2: until suddenly they were not exactly. And, and the same, the same is true to son. I mean, he dies alone in a, in a castle in France, but things Worked out. They saw what it was. They came up with a plan. They executed the plan, and the plan worked. This often doesn't happen. That last step. You can be a genius. You can see the train. You can have everything plotted out down to the t, and then you try to do it and you execute it, and then it just doesn't work. That that happens a lot.
0: There's a very wise saying. I forget who said it. The plan for battle lasts right up until the start of the battle.
2: I, I also forget who said this. One of your listeners was, I'm sure, screaming that they know the answer, but it's no battle plan survives contact with the enemy.
1: That is interesting about Spartacus because when you look at that story, there are so many times where you're like, oh, if you just made this other decision, I'm thinking particularly of when they were really close to crossing the Alps. Everyone in Rome was like, weren't in a position to go after them. And if they'd just gone over, there was a point in time where if they had just taken a different turn, it would have been a completely different story.
0: So if there's one piece of advice Toussaint Louverture would give to Spartacus, what do you think it would be?
2: Cross the Alps.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: Just just go just go through the mountains. That's it. Like, look, man, you're not going to overthrow Rome. You're not going to create some new government in Rome, right? Your, your play here is to get out. Get out of Italy. Go somewhere else. Like, you did it. Good job. You fought your way out. Go to Gaul. Go anywhere, like get out of here. Go. That's the and and that's I think what what Tucson. I mean, not like I know the man, um, but I've studied him a lot. Um,
0: you feel like you know him at this point, right? Yeah,
2: I feel like I know. I feel like I know him a little bit, and you know, I get I, I give him credit for being a, a very very intense realist, and I think that Tucson Louverture would have looked at the lay of the land and said to himself, "Why why would I go back? You know, there's nothing for us there." Now he fought, he fought, and stayed in San Domingue because that was the only. That was the only thing he could do. There was really nowhere for them to go, really. Not in the way that they were fighting to break out of something and go move to some new place. Like he was fighting for that place and had to defend that spot because there was nowhere else for him to go. But for a large, successful, mobile army like Spartacus was leading, and as you say, with most of the legions off doing other bigger things, I mean, they would have come for you eventually, but it's certainly better then turning around and, and diving back into the belly of the beast.
1: Yeah. And I mean, so many of the people in his army were different. They were just from different places. There was Gauls, there was Thracians, there was German people. They could have just all gone back to their places and just disappeared. Or they could have shored up one area where they had more of an advantage. There were lots of mountains that I can think of they could have gone to.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a great, there's a great, Alternate history to be written where they just kind of keep going and then they cross over into Britain and then they do create like a like a like a free Britain and you make you make that a, a slave free haven right where no slaves are allowed here because we're all ex slaves so that's where that's where slaves run to but of course when they got there they would have been like no let's be kings and have slaves like everybody else that's the way these people actually think we always struggle with that in modern times but yeah. Would Spartacus have thought twice about owning slaves? Maybe, maybe not.
0: There's no way to tell. I mean, we don't really get a lot of his internal monologue.
1: Yeah, it's difficult to tell because the belief is that he's Thracian. We know that Thracians sold other Thracians into slavery. So their attitudes were not the same as, as our attitudes now and what we think. I don't know what he would have done if he'd been successful.
2: Britain is a, like a free pirate island being run by Spartacus. It would be great amounts of fun because I think that, I think they could have covered that distance before anybody ever caught up to him. Love it. <laughs>
0: When we were studying Spartacus, when I was looking at the first and second Servile wars, for me, in those first two revolts, the big source is Diodorus Siculus. And um, Jen, who's your big source on Spartacus? I forget. Is it, It's not Diodorus, too, is it? I
1: think Plutarch is one of them.
0: Plutarch. Suetonius.
1: Yeah, there's Life of Crassus. He's in Life of Crassus. I can't remember because I, I used a lot of, like, modern historians as well.
0: Yeah, but um the question that I have is that, you know, working with Spartacus and working in this time period, you're basically getting a lot of your information from the oppressor. Did you have a similar problem when you were researching the Haitian revolution, or did you have a lot of material from Toussaint Louverture himself and other enslaved people?
2: The answer is yes and no. So the qualified yes is that Toussaint Louverture did leave behind writings. There are primary source documents, you know, in his hand. He left something of a sort of an official autobiography of his life that was written with the help of, uh, you know, I mean, he was literate, but with the help of some people, they put out kind of a propaganda autobiography of him. And we do have, there are other scant records, but, you know, as is the case in the Roman world, most of the records and most of the stuff is coming from the European side of things, from the colonial overseers. And there's a great, huge book that I was using for the show which is a master compendium of written sources from the time from people that were there at the time you know like an account of my life on Saint-Domingue an account of my life in Saint-Domingue and almost all of them are written by white people who were opposed to everything that was happening so there's really no difference between what's being written in those sources and the kinds of things you see written in the ancient sources you know they they would rip the heads off of babies and you know suck the brains out and you know like all the, and they would they would hang people upside down and burn them alive and,
0: there's so many babies being dashed against rocks
2: so many babies being dashed on so many rocks it's entirely true i've read that sentence many times in my life so a lot of a lot of the hyperbole about what was going on in the atrocities like the slaves We're guilty of so many atrocities. Okay, well, have you ever thought about the atrocities that you were committing? You know, like I think here's a nice way to think about it is that we have this population ratio of 500,000 slaves to, let's say, 60,000 free people. I think that the documentation is a reverse of that ratio, where the vast majority of what we have is coming from the minority population on the island. And the minority, the small minority amount of information we're getting comes from a majority of the population. Now there is there is great stuff out there. There have been some great social histories written of the Haitian Revolution. And there was a lot of oral tradition, right, that also got passed down that eventually did get documented. And so, you know, that's a mix of of becoming quasi mythological, but there's definitely rooted truth in most of those oral histories.
0: So you you had some stuff to work with at least.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely I mean it's not it's not the barren wasteland that is a lot of um Out of the ancient world, where you know you can you you can sit down and in seven par (laughs) you're looking at seven paragraphs and like oh this is the sum total of what we have to go with about this particular event or this particular war this particular person like everything comes from these seven paragraphs it's not quite that bad and with the Europeans being such fastidious record keepers even of things as abhorrent as slavery, there's plenty enough to build an accurate depiction of what was going on in that society, who was doing what. And even if we even if it's difficult to penetrate to the very inner recesses of what some of them were actually talking about, I think there's enough that we have a we do have a really good primary source idea of of who was doing what, when, and where, and why.
1: We had some other historians on recently, and we asked them for stuff that they would recommend people uh, look at if they want to find out more about revolutions or just things you've been reading.
2: Oh God, you're putting me on the spot.
1: Well, the first thing we would like to recommend is *The Storm Before the Storm*.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should. So, the *The Storm Before the Storm*, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, covers the first. The first two servile wars are in. There. They
0: are because I think I cited you for one of our episodes.
2: <laughs> hey, fantastic! Because we've been talking so much about Haiti, I'll just keep it on. I'll just keep it on Haiti. That'll be a nice thing. Okay, so you've, you've heard me talk about all this, and you're like, okay, what should I read? There are two books that I think that people should read. One of them is *Black Jacobins* by a guy named C.L.R. James. He was an Afro-Caribbean writer, mid 20th century, who wrote the first really good sort of modern history of the Haitian Revolution and its foundational text. And even if you now read it and you have to read it in the context of it being written in the 1940s by this Afro-Caribbean Marxist, it's really, really great. And it's, one of, it's, a, it's a transformative book that everybody should read. And if you wanna know about the Haitian Revolution, you need to read Black Jacobins. Um, it's a great book. James was a great writer. Um, the other one, a more a more um, updated history of it, is uh, a book called "The Avengers of the New World" by a historian named Laurent Dubois, which I forget how he pronounces his name in English. He's a he's a guy he's at Duke, I think. But he's 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 written he's written a series of uh, of histories of Haiti. Uh, he wrote one just a, a general history of Haiti, but "Avengers of the New World" is what this one is called, and that will take you through from like the origins through to the end. It's one of these sort of like. 350 pages like good sort of written for a general audience to walk you through everything and if you read adventures of the new world and black jacobins between those two you will have a very rich understanding of what happened and and look be a better person
1: yeah (laughs) also that
2: (laughs) look be a just you'll be a better person in the world if you know about this stuff
0: so thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate you taking the time and this has been fabulous thank you so much
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. That was fun. Thank you.
0: Um, do you want to plug anything else before we go?
2: I should do one big plug, which is that I'm on hiatus from Revolutions. If you go try to find Revolutions right now, um, you will see that it stopped dead in its track at uh, episode 10.39. Because I've, I'm on hiatus right, finishing my book, which is uh, a biography of the Marquis de Lafayette. Which will deal with adjacent issues to this um, because Lafayette was a major participant in the American Revolution and then he went back to France and was um, in the French Revolution and then he was ultimately in the Revolution of 1830 and you know we've spent this whole time talking about slavery and you know how does Toussaint Louverture own slaves well Lafayette came to america really without any kind of notion he was 19 he was a 19 year old kid running away from home right that's who lafayette was when he came to the american revolution he hadn't thought deeply about anything but he emerges from the american revolution goes back to france and becomes a pretty prominent abolitionist he was never able to reconcile liberty equality and slavery in his own mind so he he becomes you know when when the british abolitionists like wilberforce and clarkson like um when they get going they're very good friends with lafayette and he's one of their main points of for the pr campaign of abolitionism lafayette was a was a huge player in that except the complicating bit is that in after the american revolution but before the french revolution he got it in his head that he wanted to prove that gradual slave emancipation was possible and so he bought a plantation in French Guiana and owned himself on a cinnamon plantation, uh, 70 slaves. So he himself is a slave owner and also a prominent abolitionist at the same time. His whole point was to prove that if you treated the slaves well, if you educated them, if you give them some religion, you know, because this is he's a European, give them some Christianity and, and, and books to read and teach them how to run their own affairs, they can be free and we can do emancipation in this kind of slow, gradualist way. And he buys the plantation but then, uh, then the French Revolution gets going, and he gets carried away by other things, and the slaves that he owned never actually wound up getting freed by him. They were eventually, um, they got caught up in the same emancipation decree of 1794 that was triggered by the Revolution of Saint-Domingue. I mean, French French Guiana was just another one of these um, American French colonies, so American French... Um, uh, slave colony. So so Lafayette is, is wrapped up and adjacent to all of these stories. And he too, like it's you know, we know this about history that the very simple romantic tales that we know are entertaining, but they're also not one millionth as interesting as the the lives that these people actually led. And so um, I'm going to be, I will explore all of this in the book, the highs and lows of his life and uh, a lot about his relationship with abolitionism, which was a huge part of his identity and also is is often undercut by some of the things that he actually did or did not do. So hopefully that makes you want to read the book more. I'm fascinated
1: by Lafayette just because I was an American revolution nerd in high school and obviously with hamilton's resurgence a few years ago he has a prominent he's a prominent character there and he's just someone in history that i don't know enough about
2: i know so much about lafayette now my (laughs) goodness it's all i do all day long i know i know where this guy was on tuesday june the 17th and 17 i know i know what bars he was drinking at in (laughs) philadelphia with his buddies
0: Oh man, does he talk to you? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> when is it coming out?
2: Probably like June or July of um, 2021. So it's like still, still about a year away. When is it? Are we in May? Is it May? I don't know what time it is.
0: Yeah. Where are we? What is this? So
2: look, look for it on the shelves about a year from now.
0: That's awesome. And I definitely will uh, hopefully get to pre-order that. Oh, please do. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Absolutely.
2: Thank you. Ooh.